Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's Survival Show. Helping you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. Welcome to episode 186, I believe. Kind of lost count of some of them here. But, uh, I th- you know, this is going to be kind of a unique show. Because... It's not going to really be the normal format that I typically do. I recently made a guest appearance on another podcast, and you're going to hear that guest appearance because I'm not sure that everybody that listens to my show listens to the other podcast, and we talked about some pretty good preparedness and survival topics. This is a practical show, however. I don't go tinfoil hat on you. I'm not one of these you know, zombie apocalypse type podcasters. Plenty of other good shows out there. If you like that, that's not me. I just keep things rooted in common sense. Try to keep them practical and give you some good ideas that you can use. You know, you spend your time listening to this show. I want you to feel like you got your time's worth. You don't have to pay for this show, but you do have to spend your time. And... If you, if you get one good idea from every podcast that I put out, or if you get reminded of something that maybe you need to get back on track on, then I think that that's probably worth your time and it's worth my time doing it. So recently, I was interviewed on the Homestead Dividends podcast. The host is Dan Vamus. Now, you folks know I've had Dan on here a couple times as my special guest here on today's survival show. I'm going to go ahead and play my guest appearance uh, that I made with Dan Vamus on his show recently. And again, I know that there's some people that listen to mine that may not listen to his. You want to check it out. You want to listen to the Homestead Dividends podcast. He's very practical like me. And he's very no-nonsense and down-to-earth just like me. And that's one of the things that I, I really liked about it. So here you go. Here's the interview. And as soon as the interview is is finished up, that'll be the end of the show. One thing I want to say You notice, folks, I don't have any sponsors on this show. I do that on purpose. I've actually turned away people who wanted to sponsor my show. I like to be able to say what I want and not upset a sponsor. But more importantly, I don't like to play a lot of commercials, and I don't like to spend several minutes. Sometimes I've heard some podcasts that spend nearly a half an hour throughout the whole show running commercials. Or, or talking about sponsors. I don't like to do that. So if you want to support my show financially so that the sponsors don't have to, if you invest in my Survival Champions Club podcast, you get several hours worth of really good prepping information that I've never covered on this show. It's chock full of a lot of interviews, uh, interviews on first aid, interviews on knife and tool sharpening, interviews on using herbs and so forth for survival. Good stuff. How to basic... How to prepare your basic survival kits and stuff. A lot of good stuff on there. Go to todayssurvival.com. Click the Survival Champions Club podcast. At the end of May, I'm going to extend it to the end of May. I'm going to be doing a drawing. I'm going to be giving away a knife and a Lansky sharpening system and so forth to uh, one lucky or two lucky winners that invest in it. But mainly, you'll be helping to support my show. Todayssurvival.com, Survival Champions Club podcast. All right. Here's my guest appearance on the Homestead Dividends podcast. Welcome once again to Homestead Dividends, where home improvement, homesteading, and self-reliance meet. I'm your host, Dan Vamus, bringing you a podcast that promises you four things. I'll save you money, I'll save you time, I'll give you good advice, and I'll give you the support to do it yourself. Today, I will cut with the normal formalities at the beginning of the show because I have a guest and what a guest I have for you. I have a father, a salesman a patriot and a prepper, a gun rights advocate, husband, and a teacher of many different things. He was born in New York City and spent many years in Wisconsin and currently lives in Texas. He has two podcasts, the Handgun World Podcast and uh, Today's Survival Show. His name is Bob Main, and we're glad to have him. Bob, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dan. Nice introduction. I appreciate that. I I, I call Wisconsin home, even though I was born in New York City. I was raised most of my life in uh, America's Dairyland. So thanks for the introduction. I appreciate that. Oh, no problem. And uh, I guess to go even one step further, you do identify with Wisconsin because if I do recall, you are a cheesehead. I'm a cheesehead. I'm a hardcore Packer fan. Sorry if that offends anybody. We had a tough year last year, but uh, hey, they'll be back. You know, I think that passion is a good thing. And even if we have our own rivals, the fact that, uh, you know, you're passionate about something and you can enjoy a, a Sunday afternoon with your family in front of the television, I, 
I think everyone understands whether they're Steeler fans like me and you guys put a job on us in the Super Bowl not too long ago or, you know, people from wherever. I think everyone understands your – and I think they respect your loyalty to, uh, to your home. Yeah, a lot of people do. That's great, and uh, I respect it when people are have that loyalty. You know, it kind of gives them a sense of belonging. And for people like me, you know, I don't live up there anymore, but boy, I sure miss parts of it. There, there's some definite things about Wisconsin that I miss that I don't get a chance in South Texas to experience. So it's kind of great to hang on to some of those memories. You know, it is. And uh, those people that hear that listen to my podcast know that uh, I'm originally from Western Pennsylvania. And probably ad nauseum, they hear me talking about my home because that's where I have my bug out slash vacation home. And uh, I think wherever we spend a lot of our formative years, there's a part of us that always remains there and will always call that home. Absolutely. Now, I've got to say, in full disclosure, I, I totally love Texas and I've enjoyed every day that I've been here and probably going to be here at least quite some time, at least until our son goes off to college, wherever that's going to be. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I feel the same way. I'm blessed to be in Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, when I'm away from Las Vegas, I miss the desert and I miss the sage and I miss the mountains. And, when I'm, you know, when I'm missing, I'm here, I, I miss parts of Pennsylvania. And that's good to have, you know, loves and, and longings for various places. And uh, I think it's important to love where you are and, uh, you know, flourish and flower where you're planted. The good thing is you can be a prepper no matter where you're at. You can be a prepper anywhere as long as you just have some things in mind. And I think uh, that's why we brought you in here today, Bob. And one of those things we wanted to know um, is we wanted to know why you prepare. Well, the reason, let me tell you what, what, what caused me to start prepping. Everybody seems to have some kind of an event in their life that wakes them up. And it makes them start to become a prepper or a modern survivalist, whatever you want to call it. That event for me was September 11th. And let me go back even farther than that. I grew up. I grew up a prepper. I grew up on a hobby farm in Wisconsin. We only had 14 acres. The reason I call it a hobby farm is because we, didn't, we, we, we were not commercial farmers. We didn't raise our food to, to resell it. We raised it for ourselves. So we were self-sufficient since I can remember. And I was raised that way. Well, I fell away after that. After I went to college and kind of got mixed up in the working world, I fell away from those prepper roots and those self-sufficient roots. September 11th woke me up and kind of said, hey, you need to pay attention to this stuff again. So to answer your question, why I prepare, who really knows what's going to happen we could end up with another event like September 11th, only it could be 10 times worse. I pride myself in not being real tinfoil haddish, but I think if you really look at the realities of what's going on in the world today, I don't think it's inconceivable that a number, another September 11th type event could happen, and it could be a lot worse. Well, I'm glad you brought up the tinfoil hat thing, uh, Bob, because you know I find that uh, some people always... Uh, want to look for zombies coming out of the you know sewers and whatever but uh, prepping for me and i know it is for you is a lot more down to earth and rooted in common sense than it is in paranoia and looking for an absolute worst case scenario that you know would happen one in a million times uh would you talk about that in kind of the more commonsensical approach that you take to prepping as opposed to some of the silly things we hear about on television shows out there well sure another reason i prepare another common sense reason i prepare is because I don't have to be dependent so much on what happens in the world. I'll give you an example. You know, if I am preparing myself financially and I'm doing it properly, which is what I know one of the things that we're going to talk about, I'm, I'm less affected by a job loss than maybe somebody who doesn't pay attention to that. You know, another example is if a, if a tornado wipes through our neighborhood, and, and in Texas we get a fair share amount of, of tornadoes, if it, if it wipes out, you know, five grocery stores in a 15-square-mile area, I don't have to worry about that. I've got food. I can mitigate the, the effect of the disasters. And I think that's common sense. That's personal responsibility. That's what our grandparents did. That's how they lived. You know, here in, here in South Texas, we have, we have HEB, which are 24-hour grocery stores. Well, they didn't have those when my grandparents were growing up. And so it was a way of life for them to store food. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Bob. And one of the things that I find interesting is that when people ask me about preparing and why I do it, 
I say, because sometimes going to the grocery store stinks. And, you know, sometimes it's just as common sense or practical as, you know, I choose when I need, when I go to the grocery store, I don't necessarily need to go very often. And having the convenience of those things around on very basic rudimentary levels, very nice. But also for those, you know, times when the power goes out or when there's a small emergency or a localized emergency. And we're not talking about Armageddon, we're talking about small things, but just having those resources and things available for us, we're more in control and we're a little bit safer. At least that's how I see it. Exactly. It's taking control of your life, not being so dependent on on the idiots in Washington, D.C., for example. And they're all idiots, just about all of them. I mean, 95% of them are. You know, it doesn't matter what political party that you that, that they belong to. They've all been making boneheaded decisions. If you're taking responsibility for your own life the way you should be, what those bozos do in, in Washington, D.C. won't affect you as much as it might somebody who's not preparing. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think I'm also doing something moral by being a prepper. Not only am I preparing and taking care of my family, but I'm less one less person in line at the Salvation Army, you know, setup center that uh, for people that need, you know, emergency basic supplies. I'm taking myself out of the loop. I'm pre- taking care of myself and perhaps some people around me. And I'm putting less strain on the system if there is a relief effort. That's right. And um, to that extent, I wanted to ask you this, Bob. Uh, would you talk to me about, as far as your preps are concerned, can, I wanted to talk with you a little bit about food storage. What do you store and what is your philosophy or your system for storing? It, that's changed. When I first started, I, my wife and I decided we were going to store a lot of canned stuff and boxed foods and things like that. And I realized, wait a minute, that's that's not very smart because we normally don't eat a lot of canned foods and boxed stuff every day. And we, we just bought a freezer recently, and I know that you have to have power to run a freezer, uh, and there's generators for that, and I got that covered. Good. You know, So we can store some of the foods that we commonly eat. And I think that's more important than anything. It's, it's very important to make a list. We've talked about this before. I've talked about it on my podcast. I know you have on yours. Made a list of what we typically consume in a two-week period. And that's what we did. We narrowed it down to two weeks. It doesn't take long to make a list of what you eat in two weeks. And that's what we focused on. And we took that two weeks and multiplied it by two. That gave us a month. Then we multiplied it by three and by four and by five. Before you know it, you got three or four months worth of food stored. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, when I, if there were to be an, a power interruption, I couldn't power my whole house and I would have to pick and choose winners and losers as far as uh, my energy hogs in my house. Certainly, you know, a freezer or a, a refrigerator behind the list. But I also tell people one of the first things I would probably do is, uh, you know, live off of my uh, refrigerator and let that thing in the freezer section pull that stuff out first leave everything in my deep freezer alone. And the fewer times you open those things, the more efficient and the longer things will keep. And I kind of have a system of going from the things that are going to spoil first to the things that will spoil last. So I would go through my refrigerator, then I would go to my deep freezer, and then finally my dry goods. And, of course, I would supplement and mix and match those to make, you know, decent meals. But do you have a system like that of from going from the depression and and the things in the here and now to things that can last? Or how do you do that? Yes, I do have a system like that. As a matter of fact, we have two facets of our food storage. We have stores of foods that we commonly eat, and then we have stores of foods that we don't commonly eat but wouldn't mind eating if we had to. And that's where we have some of our canned foods and things like that, um, dehydrated foods, foods like that. Those are the foods where, you know what, we could survive if we had to eat that. It's not going to be our first choice. Our first choice is going to consume the more everyday type stuff that's in our fridge, that's in our freezer, that's in our pantry. And that's kind of the way we break it down. Okay. I, I, I've, I'm hearing a lot about food, and you've got, sounds to me like a really solid system. I was wondering if you carry that through in your other preps, and what are some of your philosophies or guiding principles that you use in your non-food preps? Yeah, we do. Let me say one more thing about food. Absolutely. I'm going to go on a limb and take a chance here. I think the chances, you know, you know, you read a lot about preppers storing, packing away two or three years worth of food. That's fine and dandy. 
I, I think the, the likelihood of a two- or three-year-long disaster where you cannot get any sources of food is, is less likely than some of the other more common things that could happen to you. And so I don't really extend it out quite that far. Uh, currently, I think right now we're at about six months. I feel pretty comfortable with six months. I, I think that if there's a disaster that happens where I can't get to food for six months, um, you know, I'm not so sure. It's probably going to be so bad, I'm not so sure what good a, a, a year's worth of food would do me. Now, that might be controversial. Some people might say, Bob, you're a fool. I would rather take those resources beyond the six months worth of food and put them into other areas. Well, you know, if you're talking about one or two years where you have no access to food, pretty much we're talking about a nuclear winter scenario. And I really don't think there's really much viability uh, once we come out of our hole in the ground if uh, that's the situation we're put in. Yeah, I mean, that we're, we're screwed, basically, if, it's, yeah. if we're down to that. Now, do I carry that into some of my other preps? Sure. Yeah, I mean, short-term, medium, and long-term preps. It doesn't matter whether it's finances, whether it's food, whether it's water, whether it's uh, self-defense needs. It doesn't matter. I mean, you've got short-term, medium, and then long-term. And so tell us what you put in the three categories, if you don't mind, starting with short-term. What do you consider your short-term preps that you really uh, are at the fore of your prepping? Besides food? Yes, besides food. Money. Money and money and other forms of currency. Um, money in terms of the American dollar, which I understand uh, is devaluing every single day. But you got to have some. I mean, let's face it, you got to have some American dollars. Uh, precious metals, you know, precious metals that if I had to, if I had to sell them to get money or trade them or barter them, I would consider that medium. And then we've also got, like, for example, long-term financial preparations. Um, we, we have, we, we, my wife and I have made the commitment to sustain us for quite some time if I didn't have a, a way to make an income. That's fantastic. And I heard a word that you use that I've heard on many of your podcasts because you know I'm a listener. I'm a jogger, and uh, I listen to your podcast, put them in my iPod, and I go away at night for an hour. Thank um, you. One of the things that I, I hear you mention a lot, and it, it's really you've impressed it upon me, talk about bartering as a means of getting what you need uh, in an emergency. I love talking about bartering. I'm glad you brought it up, Dan. It's, it seems to be a lost art. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. I've done entire podcasts on it. If you go to my, my show, Today's Survival Show, at todayssurvival.com or search it on, on iTunes, you'll, see, you'll find some shows I've done on bartering. It, it absolutely works today. And to ignore the concept of bartering, I think you're really cheating yourself as a prepper. I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of something I've been doing since 1984. I, I don't like to spend money if I don't have to. And if there's a way I can trade for a service or an item, I will try to negotiate a trade. And sometimes it's not an even trade. Sometimes I'm trading for a discount. Um, I first learned this. I first got started getting good at it back in, back in 84 when I used to be in the training business. And I used to trade my training classes for things I couldn't afford. You know, for example, back in 84, no, not everybody was carrying around a cell phone. But I wanted to have one of those fancy, cool cell phones, those old brick phones that weighed, you know, they, we called them brick phones because they, they weighed, weighed as much of a brick as a brick, and that's how big they were. And so I said, I went to a cell phone company, and I said, look, I'll tell you what, I will train your salespeople. I'll do a, a two-day seminar for free. If, if we can work out a deal on cell phone service. And I, I was told no four times. Finally, I found somebody, a company that would do it. And, and that was my first barter trade. And since then, I've traded all kinds of things. When I wanted to buy my first gun, I didn't have any money to buy my first gun. I had some old demo products, some security products, some alarm system product that my company, you know, was, it was outdated and they didn't want it back anymore. And I said, well, do you mind if I sell this or trade it? And they said, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, I just happened to find a firearms dealer that needed an alarm system for his house. And guess what we did? He gave me a big discount on the gun. I, I traded him an alarm system and we were both happy. And it seems to me that when you deal with uh, currency, that sometimes you don't necessarily get a good deal because you're going through a third party called currency. But when you're dealing with two people head on, 
the cost to them might be less than what they charge in money, and the cost to you might be less than what you're willing to pay in money. But between the two, you come with an overall lower cost because you're not using a third party to facilitate the trade. You're exactly right, Dan. You know, I go back to the example I talked about back in 84. You know, we charged a certain amount of money for our training classes. Well, my trade value that I traded for that cell phone service was a little bit less than our going rate. But in return, same thing. The cell phone company charged me a little bit less than their going rate, and we were, we were both happy. And people think that currency means money or gold or silver or something like that. Currency means even more than that. You know, bartering is a form of currency. It's what they did back in the old days when there was no money. You bet. And Excuse I was me. Too, Bob, if you, uh, what are some things that you think would be good for bartering in a situation where you may need to rely on other people's goods and services? You know, I've said this before, and some people have kind of gotten a little mad at me for saying this, but food... I think you can put food away that you know you and your family probably are not going to consume, but it might be valuable to somebody else. And if the stink hits the fan really bad, you might be able to barter some food. Make sure you got enough for yourself. Another one, ammunition. I mean, you know, let's face it. it, it I, I firmly believe if it gets bad enough out there, you could have a lot of violent people walking around because what you'll have is you'll have millions of non-preppers that had their head in the sand that weren't paying attention, and all of a sudden now they may get violent. And they may not be violent people to begin with, but when they get desperate, when people get desperate, they do desperate things. And if somebody doesn't have a way to defend themselves, you could maybe trade guns and ammunition. Um, For example, I've said this on my handgun podcast. It's actually called the Handgun World podcast at handgunworld.com. I have have ammunition for guns I don't even own. I I save that as as bartering tools. Excuse me. That's that's a that's a really good idea. I, I I didn't think about ammunition as a bartering tool, but I think that's wonderful. And I I wanted to ask your opinion on this. Things that I would consider, or that people might jokingly refer to as sins, like I'm not a smoker, but having a pack of or a case of cigarettes or carton of cigarettes or you know bought fifths of alcohol. Do you think those are reasonable things to trade, or would you stay away from that? No, I absolutely do think they're reasonable trade. We have my wife and I rarely rarely ever drink uh, i'm not going to say we don't drink that would be a lie but we rarely do we we have we have enough alcohol in the home probably for what we would drink in three years um i don't keep it there for any other reason other than i think that could be a very good bartering tool uh cigarettes are the same thing i don't store cigarettes but i know people who do we don't smoke so we don't store cigarettes but i've heard people say that and i'm thinking you know that's not a bad idea because you know, smokers could be pretty desperate if they can't get to a place to buy their cigarettes. Absolutely, Bob. And I want to go back to something you just said. You said that most people in general aren't violent by nature, but put in adverse circumstances, uh, there's no telling what people would do. And the question or the way I would put it, you know, to, to people, you know, in general is what would you do to save your family? And, and I don't – I would like to think uh, there's a certain answer for me and a certain moral and a standard, but I'm not sure everyone would follow that standard. What would you do to save your child or what would you do to provide for your family? Anything I can. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are, who are anti-gun. And I just want to reach out to people. If you're listening to this and you're anti-gun, first of all, don't mistake me. I'm not saying that guns and ammo will get you out of any survival situation. That's not true. But – the question you just asked me, Dan, is very important. What would you do to, to save your family? Would you shoot somebody to save your family if you had to? I think 99% of the preppers that we talk to would probably say yes. And probably that same 99% would defend and take a life to save their family if they needed to put in a situation where someone is coming after what they have uh, to hurt them and take what they have. Now, most preppers that I know, and I'm sure, uh, you know, Bob, I've heard you 100 if not a thousand times, say, you know, that you're more than willing to share with people in an emergency and, and not be a, a hoarder, but at the same time, giving and people taking all you have and destroying you or killing you, that's, that's where the line gets crossed, and all of a sudden, then you've got to defend yourself. Yeah, there's a fine line between that. I've had some people send me messages saying, Bob, you're a fool if you gave away your preps in a disaster, but if it meant that I give a little bit to keep 
a horde of thugs from invading my property. If I know that's going to happen, I can keep them away. I'll do that. However, if they do choose to invade my property, um, they better beware because I'll be ready for that too. I'm afraid of anyone who in their email address has part of their uh, signature, Packing Citizen. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know what? Advertise it, Bob, so I hope you don't mind me mentioning that. But uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful uh, tagline for your uh, email. <laughs> hey, I don't, I don't mind giving this email address out because it's actually linked to my, my blog and my, pack, uh, my podcast. Yeah, I thought of that a long time ago. Packing Citizen at yahoo.com. You know, and, and if you send an email to Bob at todayssurvival.com, that's where it goes to anyway, so I don't care. But yeah, you know, and again, it's, don't mistake me. People who listen to this might not be really into firearms, and that's okay. You've got to have at least one, folks. I mean, come on. If, if the stink hits the fan and some people start to get violent, let's remember the Rodney King riots. Let's remember Katrina. Let's remember September 11th. Let's remember a lot of the disasters that have happened, happened in our lifetime. Um, there's a situation going on right now that's very sensitive that I won't talk about too much, but it's all over the news and it happened in Florida. And I think that people know what, I, what I'm talking about. You know, th- th- no matter which way that situation goes, we could have some violent people. And if you live in that part of Florida, folks, you better get ready because when people get pissed off, they do violent things. When people are desperate, they do violent things. They may not be violent by nature, but something sets them off. If, there's a, if there's a disaster and they can't feed their families, they're going to be set off. And uh, what I found also is that some people who tend to be violent aren't necessarily people who necessarily always think clearly. So, for instance, I'm talking about that I've noticed in the news that there have been cases of what we'll say is retribution for some of the things or supposed retribution for some of the things that may or may not have happened in Florida uh, I know in Virginia Beach, not too long ago, or in Hampton Roads, Virginia, actually, um, a couple was dragged out of their car and beaten. And that uh, the situation in Florida was uh, mentioned as part of the reason for the attack on this couple. They were newspaper reporters from the area, and their own newspaper, uh, for fear of, I guess, maybe igniting a firestorm, didn't even uh, report the uh, incident in their paper. That's a shame. And, uh, you know, so even in... So somewhat what most people would consider completely discordant things that have nothing to do with each other, a couple in Virginia driving down the road, all of a sudden something somewhere else that people are aware of, you never know what you could be the victim of and you need to be prepared at all times. There is no necessarily, uh, there's no logic necessarily connecting the dots in some of these incidents. Somebody could be doing something in place X and there's a, there's a result in X, Y and there's really no good logical reason for it. Yeah. And, you know, Dan, you're right about that. And can I go back to something that you asked me earlier? Absolutely. Earlier you asked me about my philosophy of preparing. I think it's just as important to prepare and do things now that are going to make your life better now. Um, And I go back to finances for a minute. You know, think of how much happier people would be if more people lived debt-free, if they didn't have a bunch of bills hanging over their heads, if maybe both parents didn't have to work, that they could live on one income and be a little happier, less pressure. Pressure is what kills people. Stress is what kills people. I believe that when you prepare, when you're a modern survivalist, you reduce stress. You reduce stress now, and you reduce stress after a disaster. And by reducing stress, you live longer. Living longer means surviving. Absolutely. And you know, what's interesting, uh, you may know this, my wife's a physician, and she talks all the time about, within her little group of colleagues, how people joke about stress and stress kills doctors. Most doctors do not live to ripe old ages. Many doctors die, drop dead in their 50s of heart attacks because of their, you know, their 70, 80-hour work week with their call schedules and things like that. Um, there's a price to pay for that kind of a lifestyle. And many physicians uh, that, that are in high stressors, like my wife originally was an anesthesiologist. And uh, when you're dealing with you know, patients cut open and you're responsible for their life on that table, uh, that's a real stressful job. And uh, you know, anesthesiologists don't live long lives in av- on average. And she's switched out to uh, hospitalist or critical care, working in the hospital with people already in the ICU and kind of managing their care. And uh, I can just tell you personally, the stress level in her has reduced and her, she feels better about things. But, you know, she and her 
fellow physicians, doctors talk about this. Stress kills. It's a killer. And they also think it's a, there's a connection with cancer, that uh, the stress in, uh, increases the level of free radicals, which could lead to cancer. Exactly. You know, and you're exactly right. And it's about reducing that stress. I mean, I can't tell you, Dan, I, I can't tell you how comfortable this is. You know, uh, and, and I don't say this to brag. I really don't want people to, to think I'm bragging because it's taken us seven years to do this. Seven years. But my wife and I and my family, we could sustain ourselves for nearly two years financially if I lost my job tomorrow. Um, I sleep well at night knowing that. And I got to tell you, seven years ago, we were pulling our hair out. Seven years ago, we were in so much debt and so stressed out. It was causing us so much stress that we were unhealthy. Um, what's, what's more of a survival topic than that right there? And in, in today's economy, in today's job situation, how many people listening to this can, can honestly say that there's not a very good chance that they could lose their job soon? I think probably the vast majority. So get, get started on that right now. Get your financial house in order. And another thing I would mention, Bob, too, is if you get your financial house in order, I think in general, uh, relationships go too. It is not easy being in a marriage or in a situation, in a relationship, when you know the debt man's the collector's at the door. And uh, the healthier your finances are, I find that marriages tend to be healthier too because stress is a pollutant. It's a toxin. It's a poison. You're exactly right. I highly recommend the Dave Ramsey's, pro- Dave Ramsey's program. Um, we started on Dave Ramsey's program back in 2005, in early 2005. Uh, it only took us four years to accomplish the goals that we set out and, uh, and seven years to accomplish our, our long-term goal, which is where we're at right now. We've got a long way to go. Um, I would like to have more financial preparations other than the American dollar. I don't have enough alternatives to the American dollar, so that's my next step. However, you know, just take the first step. Just, just find a little bill like he talks about the debt snowball. Find a small bill that you have, just a small one, and pay it off. Get that good feeling. Get that good feeling, that, that hurrah feeling that you get when you can pump your fists in the air and say, all right, that one's gone. Now on to the next debt. And, you know, Bob, I just was, wanted to just uh, mention to our listeners here, it's, even though you, Dave Ramsey may be associated with and you may recognize him as a Christian, you do not have to be Christian to follow Financial Peace University. And whether you are in that faith or in another faith or in no faith at all or wherever you are in your life, his, his principles are still sound. Well, his principles are called common sense. And, you know, his principles are basically, if you can't pay cash for it, don't buy it. And I know that sounds very foreign to people. Um, he does put an exception, and that exception being your house. And if you finance that, if you finance that properly, it can actually be good debt if you finance it properly. You know, but if you can't, if you can't pay cash for it, don't buy it. It's it's that simple. Or if you can't pay it off like within 90 days, that's kind of our philosophy. And if we can't pay for it in three months, we really have no business at all uh, buying that item. And it's it's not an easy lifestyle, but I got to tell you, it's a very very rewarding lifestyle in the end. And you know, one of the things that has made my lifestyle, which is going towards debt freedom, and I will be very honest that we are not completely debt free. My wife had over $200,000 in medical school loans and college loans with everything. So uh, we're at the very end now. We're at the finish line. But uh, it's been a real sacrifice for us uh, to, uh, to get through there. But, uh, you know, it's very important for people to realize that it's important to get those debts down as, as quickly as you can and do what you can to minimize all of those problems that you have uh, and, and follow these principles. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, and there's another reason for that, Dan. For those of you who like to buy supplies, for those of you who like to buy things like generators and all kinds of survival supplies and outdoor supplies and hank, uh, hiking and, and, and backpacking and camping supplies and all that kind of stuff, where are you going to get the money? If, if you don't have any debts, it frees up the money to buy other survival preps as well as food. You know, I get a lot of emails from people after they listen to my show and they say, Bob, we, I understand what you're saying about storing food, but we don't have the budget for that. Well, I don't like to ask them a lot of personal questions, but I would venture to guess 
that the, the major reason they probably don't have the money for that is because they're probably spending a lot of money servicing some debts. It, Absolutely. And at 20% on a credit card, that's not easy to pay down. No, it's not. Now, granted, there might be some people out there that just don't have the income level to, you know, to be able to start storing food. That's a different story. But there's a lot of people out there that are just buried in debt, and of course they don't have any money to prepare. And uh, the one thing I was going to say, and I kind of lost my train of thought a second ago, but where I was going was it's been a lot easier for me to save money ever since I gave up watching so much TV and reading and subscribing to magazines. If you think about it, you get a little bit of entertainment sandwiched between a bunch of commercials urging you to buy things that you, and now need them that you didn't even know you needed. And with the canceling of my you know, magazines and really not focusing very much on TV and, and doing other things, I realized that I'm not even aware of the things that I didn't know that I need, that I don't have, that if I find out about them, I think I need, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I do know what you mean. And Dan, I admire you for that. I... Me and my family have not given up television yet. Uh, that's a hard one for us to let go. Television and movies, Netflix movies and stuff like that. We, we haven't, I don't know if we're really ever going to give that up. Um, I think we're finding ways to prepare and, and still keep the TV and the movies. <laughs> well, we haven't given it up completely, but what we've done is just put a big dent in it. It was very comfortable to come home and stick the TV on and then just leave it on as background all night. And leave it on and watch and have your dinner and leave it on and do some other things. And now we've made it more of a thing we actually force ourselves to do. We choose to turn on the television. It's not always on and it's not like that next person in the room with you. It's someone we have to invite into our home. And we found just minimizing it because I am not giving up my Steelers and I'm not giving up my uh, Sundays in the fall. I'm not. I'm not giving up my Sunday football. But, you know, it, it, it does take a smaller role than it did. If I have to give up my Packer games, you might as well shoot me right now. I'm, I'm done preparing. That's it. I'd rather just die and be done with it, and, uh, and that's it. <laughs> and, you know, I actually plan my homesteading and prepping kind of around football season. <laughs> After the Super Bowl, really, that's my busy season. You know, it's the planning time, and my, I do a post-winter kind of checklist on the homes and prepping them and getting them ready for the next winter. And I have all spring, summer, and early fall to get those things in the best shape possible. You know, as the squirrels start putting their nuts away, I'm I'm looking at, you know, the football schedules. I want to free up my Saturdays and my Sundays for a little bit of college and mostly pro football. And, uh, you know, I kind of – and that's also the holiday season or, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas. So that's really my favorite time of year. I try and focus most of my preps and all of my other maintenance and things to do around that time that's important to me. Yeah, Dan, you just brought up something that we really didn't plan to talk about it, but I hope you don't mind if we talk about it anyway, and that is have, having fun. Um, I find that a lot of people don't do a good enough job of prepping or, or being a survivalist because it's no fun. You know, they start, to, they, they start to get into it and they go, oh, man, I don't like this lifestyle. I'd like to urge people, don't eliminate all of your fun activities. You and I like our football that's our fun. That's our source of enjoyment. I like to shoot. That's also another source of fun for me. Don't give that up. Just find a way to afford them, cut back on something else that's wasteful, and keep the fun in your life and have fun while you're prepping. Because I've got to tell you, if you don't have fun while you're doing it, you won't keep doing it. That's right. And uh, to use my runner's metaphor, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Pace yourself. Do a little bit. But don't be obsessed with it. You don't have to listen to 20 podcasts a day about survival. You don't need to spend all of your time pouring over every blog and looking at uh, all the advertisements for the different preps and things like that. That's not healthy. You need to live in the now and in the real world and prepare for things that could happen, but enjoy your family, enjoy your friends, and enjoy your life. If you're spending all of your time worrying, you're not having any fun, and that's another kind of stress that's just replacing you know, the financial stress that other people might be having. Exactly. Very well put. You know, Bob, there's another thing, and I know we probably weren't going to talk about it at least at first, or I, I know that this is another one of your passages, and, and you just mentioned it, so maybe this is the time I wanted to bring it up. And you have another podcast, and your website is, I believe, handgunworld.com? That's correct. 
And it's the Handgun World Podcast? podcast? Yes. Yeah, it's called Handgun World Podcast. It's at handgunworld.com. Some people know it by the old name of the Handgun World Show. Either one, same thing. Uh, you can find it on iTunes. If you just search Handgun World on iTunes, you'll find it right up, pops right up. Or if you want to go straight to the website, you can just go to handgunworld.com. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, and the first one's probably the last one, but I want to do it this way. Bob, when I, when I meet an expert, and I know that you're going to say, oh, shucks, you know, I'm not an expert, I'm just a regular guy, and I totally respect that, but you are more of an authority than me, definitely on handguns and firearms. And my question I, I like to ask experts or people I perceive as being knowledgeable in an area is I'm always worried about things that I, I don't – I know so little about the subject that I don't even know what I don't know. So my question to you is – what are the things as a novice or just a mild gun enthusiast that I should know that maybe I don't or questions I should ask or things that I should know about uh, guns that maybe a person just entering the field or this interest doesn't even think about? Okay. There's a very easy answer to that. This may surprise some people. Please do yourself a favor if you don't know much about firearms. Please do not listen to the so-called experts out there. Um, please, please do your own homework. Don't listen to somebody tell you, oh, well, you know what? I, 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 I'm, a, I'm a retired military guy, and uh, I think you should buy this type of firearm. No offense to, to military people, uh, because, I, you know, I love the military. I, God bless our soldiers, and they're out there fighting to protect our rights to do this podcast right now. So I thank every one of them for my service. But what might be good, or for their service, what might be good for one person may not be good for you. Don't listen to the so-called experts. Don't listen to the gun store salesman. Don't listen to somebody that's got something to sell. I'm in sales. I know. Take it from me. Don't listen to somebody that's got a gun to sell to try to tell you what, what you should own. You need to go find places that rent firearms, and go rent them. And, you know, take somebody with you that might know something uh, a lot about firearms, but tell them that, look, I'm going to be the ultimate judge of what I choose. I'm going to rent a bunch. I'm going to shoot them. I'm going to pick what's, what I feel is best for me and most comfortable, and that's that. I think that's some really good advice, Bob. And, you know, that is some advice that I did not take when I initially purchased my first firearm. It was a handgun. And, I, and the salesman did give me a, a good weapon, but it wouldn't probably have been my first choice. What I got was an SP-101 Ruger, and I was just recently listening to one of your podcasts on revolvers, and it's interesting what you had to say about uh, some of them. I don't know if you call it kick or whatever, but uh, holding a, you know, a th- it's a 357, and you know, even when I shoot 38 Specials, um, it's a little bit of a jolt holding on to that thing. Exactly. Um you know, that's the other thing, too. Everybody's got advice. Everybody says, oh, if you're a beginner, you need to get a small, easy-to-shoot gun. <laughs> I beg to differ. Most small guns, and an SP-101 is a relatively small gun. I mean, it's, I, okay, I'd say it's a medium gun, medium weight gun. Small guns are hard to shoot, folks. Um, if you're a woman listening to this and somebody says, go get yourself one of those little tiny thirty-eight special uh, lightweight revolvers, don't. Don't do it. Those things are a beast to shoot. And most people, after they fire about 15 rounds, they go, I don't like it. Um, I'm not saying those are bad guns, but they're just not beginner's guns. So again, um, find a gun shop that rents guns and shoot no less than 10 firearms before you make a purchase. I'm serious about that. And I had a guy email me one time say, Bob, Bob, that's expensive. I said, well, it's probably less expensive than it is for you to make a mistake on a purchase. I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, I think I lucked out insofar as even though it wasn't necessarily the best handgun for me, I think it's a solid uh, self-defense weapon uh, if, if I need to. But uh, my wife has uh, a 380 auto, and I can tell you that that thing is a pleasure to shoot compared to my, uh, my revolver. Yeah, and some 380 autos are, are great to shoot. Some of them are, are not. I've owned a couple of small little pocket-sized 380s that are no fun to shoot, especially when you put hot-loaded self-defense rounds in there. It's not fun. And, Bob, for some of our listeners, 
out there, can you explain what a hot load is? They may not be familiar with that term. Yeah, I'm glad you, I'm glad you asked me that. Uh, let me put this in real simple terms. Hot loaded means that when you fire it, it's going to be tra- the bullet's going to be traveling at a faster speed, and it's probably going to kick a little bit more, but it's going to have a little bit more what they call stopping power. And it's the basic laws of physics. The basic laws of physics. If you push something faster or heavier, you have the same type of reaction coming back at you, typically called recoil. And the hotter loads usually have more of that. What, what they call soft loads, people typically use for practice, but they're not very good for self-defense. Was that, was that kind of simple? Absolutely. That, I think that really explains it and actually helped me a little bit too with, their, with the understanding of a hot load versus a soft load. And um, I wanted to take uh, our gun uh, conversation a little bit further if that's okay. And I, I wanted to know uh, just some relative uh, rules that you use with guns or handling guns or what are just some of the common things Then we realize that common sense isn't always that common. What are some uh, rules of thumb or tips that you have for people with handling storing, dealing with guns? Terrific questions. Google Jeff Cooper's four rules of gun safety. Just Google that. I'll say that again slower. Jeff Cooper's four rules of gun safety. Um, If you Google that, you'll easily find it. Memorize those. Commit them to memory and don't ever forget them. That that is the all. That's the entire lesson that you need to know on handling a firearm. Just Google Jeff Cooper's four rules of gun safety. Um, and uh, I want you know what I know them by heart, but I'm not even going to say them here on the podcast because I want you to Google them and I want you to commit them to memory and I want you I want, I want you to see it on your computer screen in big print and. Print it and stick it on the wall of your house somewhere where you can see it every day if you're going to own guns because that's so important. Okay, and another question for you, Bob. Do you carry on your person, and if so, why? Every day, every day. Um, I carry every day wherever it's legal. Why? For the same reason that we prep. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. That's why we prep. That's why we store food. That's why we store water. That's why we prepare financially. That's why we buy supplies. We're getting, that's why you put a seatbelt on when you sit in your car because you have no idea what's going to happen on your drive. That's the other reason why I carry a gun. You know, I, I joke about it on my other podcast. I, I open up every show by saying I carry a gun because I can't carry a cop. But, you know, if you really think about that, there's a great deal of truth to that. You know, you can't carry a cop around to protect you 24 hours a day. And I have another saying. I carry a gun not because I'm looking for trouble, but sometimes trouble finds me. And how many of us listening to this podcast right now can absolutely predict that trouble is not going to find you one day? And are you going to be ready for it? Now, a lot of people think, oh, my God, carry a gun? You've got to be kidding me. Well, yes. Uh, in, in, in most states now, it's legal. Um, some states you don't need a license, but most of them you do. Get it. Uh, it it's your American right. It's, it's, it's your God-given right. It's protected by our Constitution, and you don't know what's going to happen to you. You don't have a clue, and that's why I do it every day. I can tell you very honestly... Uh that I cannot carry every day, or at least not to and from work. I am a school teacher, and as you know, uh, weapons, handguns are prohibited, except by law enforcement officers, in and around the uh, perimeters of, of schools and things like that. So that is not something I can do every day to and from work. But when I do have the opportunity and I come home from work, I do carry occasionally, and it's something I need to get in the habit of doing more. Here in Nevada, we have wonderful open carry law, uh, it's actually concealed weapons that they have a problem with. Oh, that's interesting. You mean you could open carry into a school? No, no, no. What I'm saying is, um, I no, I, I can open carry in Nevada in general. Oh, okay. But obviously, in a school, I cannot carry anywhere. Um, I can't, as a school teacher, and being in and around school campuses, I can't bring a gun with me even in my car because I would be parking it on school property. So I don't carry. But when I'm out of my school environment and just enjoying life in Nevada, I can open carry. 
Oh, just, that, yeah, that's what you meant. Now, yeah. just a little education for people listening to this show. I live in Texas. In the state of Texas, you uh, could carry that gun in your vehicle all the way to school property, and you can legally leave it in your parked vehicle on school property as long as you do not enter the school building with that firearm. That's really interesting, and I guess I could, should look into that here, but I'm pretty sure it's prohibited even on the grounds. But, you know, that makes me think maybe I should double-check. However, I'm pretty sure uh, I cannot. Yeah, and that's, it's a controversial. You know, carrying in, it, should teachers be allowed to carry in schools? That's a very, very controversial question, and you can find many people against it and many people for that. I don't want to touch that on this podcast, but... Um, where it's legal to carry, I would strongly suggest that people do that. Okay, that's a that's a that's a good uh, good response. And you know, I really don't know enough about uh, the situation out here to really tell you. And I guess that's probably shame on me that I don't know exactly what the rules are. And the ironic thing is, I used to teach at a high school that right behind us they open up the Disney World of gun ranges, and literally it is larger. Uh, geographically than Disneyland in California across the border here. It is an enormous, beautiful shooting park. And uh, it's uh, the Clark County Shooting Range. It is, a tr- it is a Disney world for shooters and enthusiasts. They even have a campground for people that are coming from far away that want to spend the night and, and really enjoy it over a weekend over an extended period of time. And uh, I can't encourage people enough, if you're ever traveling to Las Vegas, come up to the Clark County Shooting Range in the north part of the valley. It's amazing. I have a brother in Las Vegas. Next chance I get to go there, I'll give you a call and take you to lunch. But I'm also going to go check that place out with my brother because he loves to shoot too. And, you know, hey, Dan, can I say something else about, about carrying a gun? You bet. A lot of people say, well, that's pr- you're, as a prepper, you're probably least likely to use your gun than any of the other preps that you have. That's true. But there's one more thing that people probably haven't thought of. You know, I don't want to get too political because I don't try to get political, but if you look at the landscape and you look at the direction our country is headed, I don't think it's inconceivable that we could be subjected one day to some serious abuses by our own government. Um, I don't think that's tinfoil haddish. I think that government abuse is actually getting worse and is going to continue to get worse. The more citizens that are armed... And this was the original purpose of the Second Amendment. The more citizens that are armed, I firmly believe, the harder it's going to be for a tyrannical government to do what they want to do. Exactly. Dictators hate an armed populace. And, uh, you know, in countries where guns are frowned upon and looked down upon and were looked at as savage or vulgar or whatever, uneducated, unenlightened, um, those are the kinds of countries where things can turn very quickly and uh, the peasants are gunned down because they have pitchforks instead of shotguns. And so I don't want to be in that situation where I cannot protect myself and my family. Any government is suspect to fall. Nobody, no government, no one way is, uh, is beyond reproach. All governments and all civilizations over time have failed and collapsed and rebuilt and failed again. And there is no... There is no uh, unlimited warranty here on the American democracy. It can, it is, it is a blessing, but it is, it is not guaranteed. Oh, I like those words you just used. Can I borrow them? There's no unlimited warranty on the American Republic. That's true. Absolutely. That is, uh, you know, yeah, quote me on that one. Then write it down <laughs> so I know what I said. <laughs> I, I will give you proper credit, but I like those words. That's terrific. And, you know, I was reading a blog uh, a week ago, and doggone it, I cannot remember the name of the blog, or I would certainly give the blogger credit. Yeah, but he put a blog post on there, and he said, you know what, somebody from another country in Europe told me that I was a savage because I carried a gun, that I was a thug because in the United States I carried a gun. And he said his response back to that person was, I can't think of anything more savage than your government taking away 50% of your income in taxes like they do in your country. Well, and even further, Bob, I think it's interesting that these people that are so elite and so erudite and so beyond uh, reproach and above firearms were the same people welcoming us at World War II as we were marching across Europe, saving these people 
from, you know, uh, a horrible dictator and an oppressive uh, government regime. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's very nice to talk out of both sides of your mouth, but, you know, sometimes democracy and freedom can be ugly. And I'm sorry that it's not as beautiful or as politically correct as uh, what Europe wants to paint us out to be. Uh, we are sometimes a little more vulgar, a little more down to earth, a little more realistic. And you know what? We're a little more free too. And I'll take the trade off. Can anybody think of anything that is more of a statement of freedom than one's ability to defend oneself? And, uh, you know, the other thing, Bob, that goes along with this is uh, people, I think, misunderstand what a police officer does. Most of the time, a police officer does not stop crime. He's more of a historian. He reports crime. He That's records exactly it right down. Right. He fills out a form for you or a claim or whatever. Uh, whatever happens, he writes everything up. He is not there, as you said. You, know, you don't carry a cop with you. There is not someone, even if you down 911, the time it takes that call to be responded, dispatched, and for the person to arrive at the scene, whatever was going down has gone down. Yep, the cop is there as a historian. And I didn't know this until I actually talked to a police officer friend of mine, and he reminded me. He said, Bob, even if you could carry a cop with you everywhere, that cop is under no obligation to protect you. He does not have to if he does not wish. He does not have a duty to protect you. Um, most of them would because that's, that's their job, but there's no obligation. And uh, you're right, they're historians. Um, he also told me, he said, he said, do you know what the, what the most used instrument is that a cop carries on his belt? And first thing I thought of was, was, was handcuffs. And he said, no, that's wrong. And I thought of, well, what, his, his gun, his taser gun, his flashlight? And, I, and all those were wrong. He said, the most used piece of equipment on a police officer's belt says Motorola on it. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. His radio or his phone or his comms device, whatever it is. Motorola is the most used object on a police officer's belt, followed very closely by his flashlight. And, uh, you know, uh, that's the thing is they're historians. Um, you're, you're exactly right. When they show up on the crime scene, they're typically there. They're too late. Well, Bob, uh, I know that uh, we're running a, uh, I'm having a fantastic time with you, but I know that your time is precious to you. There were a few more things I wanted to touch on if you have time. Go for it, yeah. One of the things that I noticed that you do a lot on your uh, podcast, the survival, today's survival, uh, I noticed you have like on the corner of your blog a list of different topics or themes and then the times that they appear. And one that was really high on your list was community relationships. And I was wondering if you would just take a second to talk about the importance of community relationships in survival and preparedness. Oh, good, good question. I'm a huge believer in networking. I'm a huge believer in setting up a, a survival friendship group or a survival networking group, whatever name you want to give it. Um, there's power in numbers, let's face it. And if you can get people in your community to band together and become preppers, and some people say, well, that's kind of hard because it's a turnoff. Yeah, start with something simple, um, neighborhood watch program, you know, or you, you could come up with all different kinds of simple things that you could band together and do. Um, you know, even like taking care of each other's pets and things like that. And then you start to start up conversations and so forth. Um, you might want to set up a, uh, if you're pretty good with this kind of stuff, set up a community financial preparedness group. Uh, finances is something everybody can pretty much relate to. But there's power in numbers. If, if, there's, if, if the crap hits your fan in your neighborhood, would you want to be the only prepper in your neighborhood? Or would you want to have a group of 25 people that you can rely on because of your hard work in building relationships. And I would probably further this and say there, are may, there may be some people out there that may not even be preppers and may not be people that you can necessarily win over or preach the gospel of prepping to, but they still are a friend and a neighbor and they're invaluable as a resource even if they're not preppers. Wouldn't you agree? I would definitely agree, and you taught me something in one of our interviews. We were talking about not making enemies with your neighbors. I think that's very important because neighbors typically after a disaster, 
as long as you haven't really pissed them off and made an enemy out of them, neighbors tend to start helping each other out. You know, they might be the kind of people that never talk to you the whole time you live there, but sure enough, a disaster happens, and all of a sudden people are coming to each other's aid. And uh, you never know when you're going to need somebody, and that there's no reason to, unless it's warranted, you know, alienate a neighbor. Uh, you don't have to agree with them. You don't even have to see them that much. But does it take really that much to wave or say hi or make eye contact or something blows in your yard off their garbage can to pick it up and, you know, not make a big deal about it and just kind of, you know, mend fences and, and keep a good relationship? It's not. It's not hard. Uh, one of my old mentors uh, gave me some very good words of wisdom. I was about 22 years old. He said, Bob, be careful of the toes that you step on today because they could be connected to the rear end you have to kiss tomorrow. And I've heard you say that before on your podcasts. And <laughs> as I'm jogging, I got to tell you, it, it puts a smile on my face as I'm running around in the dark around the streets. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, that, that has stayed with me. And another one from, an, uh, from a, uh, another person that uh, I've uh, been interviewed with, uh, Jack Spirko, um, you may be familiar with him. He uh, said one of his bosses was a horrible boss, but he, but he said one thing that made sense to him. He said, you know, life is kind of like a stink salad or sandwich. The more bread you have, the less stink you have to eat. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Jack is, is tremendous. You know, Jack is probably, I would say, you know, if he, if he doesn't have the number one podcast on survival, it's pretty darn close. He's probably number one. You know, you should be listening to the survival podcast. It's, it's terrific, and I like that. That's a, would you, say that again. Uh, life is life is like a stink sandwich. The more bread you have, the less stink you have to eat. <laughs> Only you didn't That's use good. those words. I keep it family friendly here, but I think you get the gist. Yeah, I know. Stink sandwich was re replaced by another S word. I'm sure. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was you know, in Jack's incredibly down to earth kind of almost crass vulgar way. I loved it. I mean, you know, he just tells it like it is, and I just thought that was hysterical. And you know, your way is uh, is just as valid to make the point that you know. The toes you're stepping on today might be attached to the rear end. You have to kiss tomorrow. So, you know, and the same, and another way of saying it is the people you pass on the way up are going to be the same people you pass on the way down. It's, it's important to be humble and uh, you never know when you might need something or a person remembers a kindness that you pay them. Well, community relationships. I mean, I'll give you an example. A lot of people who have been listening to my show know that approximately 10 months ago, I got a new job, thank God, and that job required me to relocate from the North Texas area in Dallas-Fort Worth to San Antonio, and, uh, and we love San Antonio, by the way. Well, three days after we move into the neighborhood, a neighbor's coming over bringing us a big welcome basket with all kinds of treats and everything in it. And it made me think of some of the podcasts I did on community relationships, that kind of stuff. You know, are you that kind of a neighbor? Those things will go a long way in your survivability if the crap hits the fan and all of a sudden now you and your neighbors have to band together to help each other out. Absolutely. You know, it's, sometimes it's the smallest of gestures that make the biggest impacts on people. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Bob, as, as we're drawing to a close here, I wanted to give you a chance to uh, speak to my audience and uh, just tell us a little bit about your podcasts and how to contact you and your addresses and all those things that uh, people out there want to know. I do two podcasts. Um, we've talked about one of them quite a bit, Today's Survival Show. I think, I think I've done about 185 episodes. It's typically a weekly show, once, at, once a week. I usually put it out, usually on a Friday. You can find that at todayssurvival.com. Uh, it's common sense stuff. You know, I call it doing what you can with what you have, wherever you are, and no tinfoil hattery. The other podcast that I do is called the Handgun World Podcast at handgunworld.com. And my approach to firearms is very practical. Uh, I do not come from a military background or a law enforcement background. Uh, I'm not an ex-firearms trainer. I'm not a gunsmith. Um, I'm just pretty much kind of an everyday guy that believes in self-defense. That, that is who I am. So you're going to get that kind of, of a perspective from me. I'm not going to talk about a lot of fancy terminology and garbledy gook about firearms and things like that. I'm going to talk about some of the things I learn as a, as a citizen that carries every day, some of the mistakes I've made, and try to make it a learning experience about firearms. So I would urge you to check that out as well. 
And folks, if you haven't checked out his shows, I strongly urge that you do. Um, Bob is is a what you see is what you get guy. Um, you're not going to get pretense. You're not going to get a bunch of crazy terminology. He doesn't talk down to you. He's a regular guy with uncommon common sense. Yeah, and, uh, I couldn't you. urge you strongly enough to check out what he's doing. He is uh, someone that I've looked up to and has been a mentor to me in in, uh, in the survival preparedness and someone that I definitely look up to. And I think you definitely, if you haven't, check him out and, and definitely take a look at his podcast. Thank you, Dan. Very much appreciate that. Well, uh, that does our that's our show for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, please stop back again soon. Good night and God bless. <laughs>